Section 2 of The House of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. The Arrival. Thaddeus Wilde strode along the narrow footpath beyond the store, beyond the few little story-and-a-half frame houses with picket fences, out onto the road that led to the region known as South Farms. It was then more than a quarter of a mile to their destination, and Doris, hurrying to keep up to her guide in the darkness, occasionally stumbled against a stone and was ready to faint with fatigue and hunger when they reached the gate. There was no light from the front of the house, but the glass in a door in the wing showed a half-hearted illumination that shone out on the scurrying snowflakes and the leafless vines of the side porch. The man had hardly spoken since they left the green, except to ejaculate a rough, Look out there! when the child had nearly fallen. This was not his scheme. He could see no real need of another pair of hands in the house. There's your youngin, he had said to his wife when they had discussed the subject a week before. Set her to work at the dishes. Thad Wild, retorted Abigail. I ain't gonna have Relia brought up to be a drudge. Do you suppose a pair of hands like them, holding up her own hardened and coarsened palms, would look nice on her? Anybody think that there's going to be a vacancy on the throne of England offered to Reilly, he replied, or maybe you're fitting her for the White House. That wouldn't be strange, said his wife, seriously. It's a free country. Well, you might think you're sowing a fine crop of corn, but I'll lose my guess if it ain't pulsy, and plenty of it. Pussy don't need no encouragement, but you're setting up nights and breaking your back to make the tarnal stuff grow. I've always said, declared the woman hotly, that's your business is to tend to the outside. Inside matters belong to me. I want help, and I'm going to have it. From her babyhood, no one except her mother had ever called Abigail Lane anything but Gail. There had always been a certain fierce, dominant energy about her. She had been born to a humble, patient, plodding little couple in Kent, whose personal appearance, like their lives, was done in monochrome of unaggressive brown. Nature had taxed neither her imagination nor her palate in their production, but the baby was a wonder, as if some gorgeous tropical flower had suddenly blossomed among the prosaic rows of potatoes in the kitchen garden. She was a bit of incarnate flame and had brilliant eyes, high coloring, and an imperious temper. Her mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother had been upper servants in the Waverly Ridge Manor House. Perhaps it was the story she had heard from childhood of the luxury and gaiety that had prevailed there at weddings and family festivals that had first stimulated her girlish brain to aspire to ampler conditions than those in which she found herself. She hated the small, plain rooms, the dull comfort her parents took in the evening beside their kerosene lamp the odor of machine oil that ever hovered about her father and the long sunday services when the minister seemed like a jailer who kept her active young limbs in durance she began to ask why her father and mother should live in a tiny house when other people had large ones why they could not keep horses and a carriage why she had only two sets of hair ribbons when some of the girls at school had different colors and wore them in lively rotation. 
Abigail said her meek little mother tried one day to the point of retaliation. If you don't stop murmuring against the Almighty, I wouldn't wonder if the house took fire and burned up what little you have got. This was as surprising a flight of imagination for Martha Lane as if a tallow candle had exploded. Encouraged by the look temporary amazement on the face of her daughter, she continued, Haven't I told you that the Lord putteth down one and setteth up another? Then why doesn't he set us up? questioned the unsubdued Abigail. Because it ain't best, retorted Mrs. Lane. Now tend to your sums. As Gail grew older, her discontent was less outspoken, but she became sullen and remote in her manner. When she was about 13, there was much interesting gossip all through that section about the marriage of Carol Maltby of the Ridge to a girl from Ohio. It was reported that she came of a very humble family, but by her own native talents and force of character had made her way with honors through the public schools, won a college scholarship, achieved the chair of English literature in a famous college for women, and had made a place for herself as a magazine writer. The Maltbeats had welcomed her to the very heart of the rich society. Gail had seen her when the bride first came to Kent to do some shopping with her husband's mother. According to the newsmongers, her father had been a mill hand. Thus Gail grasped the idea that education would be the golden key to unlock the door of her dream castle. She did not submit to narrow, sordid, colorless circumstances. There was a way out. She no longer sulked and rebelled, but began to study early and late and surprised her grammar school teachers and led her classes. Then her father had a long illness and died, leaving no money. Mrs. Lane sewed for the neighbors and Gail went behind a counter in the village department store. Bitterly, she saw her classmates pass on into the high school and gradually become separated from her. She had no uplift of the heart heavenward. To her, God was a power who thwarted and tantalized her. Thaddeus Wilde, a farmer from the corners, had determined to win her from the first day that he say her in the store. Her dark hair and eyes, her bright color, her air of executive abilities were all very attractive to him. He had inherited a good house and a fruit and vegetable farm, and he felt that with a suitable helpmeet he could enlarge his holdings and supply a wider market. Gail treated him with a hauteur that amused and an indifference that stimulated him. He was awkward and ungainly and uneducated, but he had a mulish persistence that was more than a match for the girl's wheel. When Gail became ill through worry and disappointment, and her splendid color and strength had fled for a season, and there was nothing coming in for rent and medicines, Thaddeus urged his suit anew. He had been most kind, coming day after day with fruit and eggs and cream. Gail did not love him, but she was pushed quite to the wall. To marry Thaddeus meant release from the bondage of the shop and an assured home to her mother. At Deep Furrow Farm, she rapidly regained her bloom and energy, but with them came the bitter realization that she had not had her own way and never could have that on which she had set her heart. Her lot was cast. She was married to a comparatively poor man whose only ambition was to raise the earliest and best berries and green vegetables in that part of the county. He was proud to have captured the handsome and high-spirited girl 
whom he had so doggedly pursued, he knew that she felt herself superior to him, that she did not love him, and the tender plant of sentiment that had taken root in his heart withered in the frost of her tolerance. He did not suffer much, for he was not trained to find his happiness in the finer phases of life and thought. His wife was practical and efficient, his house was neatly kept, his meals served on time, and dairy and poultry yard prospered in her care. She drove her duties before her fiercely like a flock of sheep. Work, indeed, made an outlet for her pent-up rebellion at her fate. When a baby girl was laid in her arms, all the tremendous forces of her nature were fused into one powerful passion. She would accept her destiny, her milk pans and chickens, with a degree of satisfaction, but her child should succeed. Her own life must be worked out on a low, common level, but the opportunity snatched from her should be returned tenfold to this new creature, whom she laid at the outset on the altar of mammon with a fierce and unholy consecration. Thaddeus had hovered over the baby with a new light on his heavy features and a strange throbbing of the heart, but the mother had silently resented his claim to a share in the treasure of baby smiles and caresses, and had managed subtly to interpose her own personality as a barrier between father and child. While Thaddeus could not actually accuse her of such intent, he was aware of being left out in the cold and accepted the situation with his usual ox-like acquiescence. Even the mother never lavished endearments upon Aurelia. From the first she placed her upon a pedestal as far too choice and too fine for ordinary use. She must be served from the beginning, even as the future must always provide servitors. Others might wonder that so exquisite a child should belong to the wilds, but Gail knew that the little girl was the physical expression of her own intense longings. She looked not at all like either of her parents, except that she had inherited a delicate hint of her mother's vivid coloring, along with the replica of her mother's temper that lacked no tone of the original. She had wonderful, fluffy, golden hair and dark eyes that made an arresting combination with it. Her head set proudly on her slender neck, that there had been transmitted a cruel selfishness and inordinate vanity and an obtuse moral sense did not at first enter Mrs. Wilde's thought. Neither did the first few years reveal that Thaddeus unconsciously had his innings, for Aurelia had inherited his intellectual fiber, a sort of mental asbestos that could never catch a fire at a spark from heaven nor bring great things to pass. It was too busy a household to be keenly unhappy. There was neither time nor ability to broodingly analyze the situation. Against the homely, bustling background, the child blossomed all white and gold. Her mother had named her from a faint remembrance of the Oriel, but the glory was on that surface only. When she was six years old, she deliberately choked to death a puppy that had chewed one of her doll's ribbons. Her grandmother, as well as the father, had been set aside by the infatuated mother. Once, when Mrs. Lane ventured to protest mildly that Aurelia would be spoiled, Gail replied, She's mine to do as I like with. She's no common child. I didn't get a chance myself, but she's going to make up for that. When Thaddeus Wilde and Doris arrived at the house, the man stamped his feet vigorously on the mat and opened the door, shoving the child before him into a long, low-sealed kitchen 
where a large table covered with brown-figured oilcloth was set for supper. The room was blue with smoke from burnt fat. A slender, wrinkled, gray-haired woman was bending over a huge frying pan on the stove. A younger woman with hard black eyes and a flushed face was bringing from the pantry in one hand a plate piled with bread and in the other a supply of butter. Well, she said in a high, strident voice, setting down the plates noisily on the table and turning toward the door. So you've come, have you? Goodness, what a peaked-looking youngin! See here, Mara, what Joel Grannis has sent us. The woman at the stove was already looking, her knife and fork poised in the air, and there was a gentle expression in her faded eyes as she said under her breath the very words Silas Webb had uttered, Poor little critter! A door opened out from the next room, and a child's golden head appeared. Now rely us, said Mrs. Wilde. You shut that door this minute. You'll get your hair all smelling of smoke. Go back, I say. But I want to see the new girl, whined Relia. You'll see enough of her, and I guess I shall too, replied her mother. She ain't much to see, I can tell you that. Now mind. The door closed heartily, giving Orelia a chance to pull a face at the stranger. Doris recoiled from the harshness of her new mistress, but realized that the room was warm and that there was hot food in preparation. Take off your things, said Mrs. Wilde, and you can help carry in Miss Relia's supper. She don't sit out here along with us and the hands. But Gail timidly interposed her mother, turning from the large stone china platter that she was heaping with fried cornmeal pudding in thick slices. Do let the child get warmed first and give her something to eat. Now, Mar, said Mrs. Wild, this girl is here to do as I say, and I'll thank everybody to leave her to me. She'll get her supper soon enough. The quicker she's broke into my ways, the better. Come along, she said to Doris. Doris tremblingly followed her into the next room. It was a neat little sitting room. A base burner stove and a hanging lamp with a flower-bedecked shade revealed some comfortable chairs, an array of potted plants, a few lithographs on the walls, and other tokens of an attempt to make the place attractive. Orelia sat at a side table sullenly picking at the strings of an auto harp. She stared at Doris and thrust out her tongue. Mrs. Wilde went straight to a tall, old-time mahogany sideboard with numberless drawers and doors and shelves occupying nearly one whole side of the room. See here, she said to Doris, opening one of the doors. This is where I keep my daughter's table linen. You can take this cloth and lay it on the little square table under the lamp. But first, you must set off the vase. Faint and trembling and with a great choking lump in her throat, Doris did as she was bidden. While Orelia continued to make faces at her and giggle insolently, Say, Mar, exclaimed Orelia, it ain't straight. Well, I should say not, replied Mrs. Wilde sharply. Doris, don't you know enough to put the fold right in the middle of the table? Doris readjusted the snowy little hem-stenched cloth and went over to Mrs. Wilde for further orders. From a narrow drawer, Mrs. Wilde took out a sterling silver knife and fork and two spoons. Just lay these on the table, she said, and this napkin. My daughter doesn't use a ring. She has a clean napkin every day. Doris started back to the table, but tripped over the edge of a mat and fell headlong, scattering the silver over the carpet. She's spoiling my things. She's spoiling my things, screamed Orelia, dancing up and down with rage. I hate her. I do hope I haven't hurt anything, Mrs. Wilde, said Doris hoarsely, examining the silver. 
Oh, no, stupid, snapped her mistress. It's the best thing in the world for silverware to slap it onto the floor once in a while. Keeps it from getting scratched up. Now see if you can smash this china and glass, will you? She had opened a corner cupboard that was devoted to Orlia's belongings. Jellies, a jar of honey, tins of fancy biscuits, and a box of bonbons occupied one shelf, and on the other were several thin glasses and a few pieces of delicate and expensive china decorated in forget-me-nots. Doris was shivering now from head to foot. Her teeth chattered in nervous dread. She longed to dash out into the night anywhere, but controlled herself, kept back her tears, and finished her task under Mrs. Wilde's directions. Relia has different things to eat from the rest of us, said her mother. She don't eat fried things. I'm awful careful of her complexion. And she handed Doris a tray she had set with the child's food. Creamed chicken on toast, a glass of milk, and a golden slice of feathery sponge cake. Then, as Doris returned, she continued, The hands have come in, and we'll have our supper. You may sit with us tonight, seeing you've just come, but after this, You'll have to wait on the table and always answer to Relia's call when she wants anything. Doris took her place knowing that six pairs of eyes were on her. No one spoke to her for which she was thankful. The grandmother next to whom she sat supplied her plate and filled her glass with milk, and once a gentle wrinkled hand patted her own when it lay in her lap beneath the table. From the next room came an impatient jingle. Mrs. Wilde said to Doris, Hurry and see what she wants. Doris awkwardly knocked over her chair as she rose hastily from the table and went to the household tyrant who demanded more chicken. There ain't any more, called her mother through the open door. You had enough and all there was. I don't care, shouted back Orelia. I didn't really want it. I wanted to make her get up. How natural it does come to Relia to have somebody run at her bidding exclaimed Mrs. Wilde across the table to her husband. She's got it in her. Thaddeus grunted into the depths of his teacup and passed it up for more. The two stolid men at his right shoveled pudding with their knives and did not look up, but a slender, nervous-appearing boy of sixteen at the other side of the table flashed a glance of mingled amusement and contempt at his employer's wife from beneath his half-closed lids. That was not lost on the observant matron. Kelsey Starr had a way of making her feel at a disadvantage. Although he always spoke respectfully, he savored of adverse criticism. She had requested her husband to discharge him, but Thaddeus had found the boy so alert and capable and reliable that he refused to part with him. Mrs. Wilde stirred her tea and planned a punishment for that glance. She knew that the lad was devoted to books in the evening and that he was studying with the Kent rector and preparing for college. Kelsey, she said as she left the table at the close of the meal, I have to begin my mincemeat tonight, and you can stone the raisins and chop the citron. All right, ma'am, said the boy with a buoyancy that deprived Mrs. Wilde of nearly all her pleasure in the announcement. I must take a look at the colt before I settle down. He didn't eat right tonight. Kelsey would have preferred to hoe an entire onion bed than to seed one cup of raisins, and, besides, he had set his heart on mastering a certain Greek verb before going to rest that night. He lighted a lantern and went out to the stable, and then carried the light up to his room, and before Mrs. Wilde's voice rang up the stairway, he had time to transfer to a strip of brown paper the six systems of the verb in question and put it in his pocket. 
In the meantime, Mrs. Wilde had set Doris to wash the dishes. Mrs. Lane dried them and put them away, talking but little, and that in a timorous and suppressed manner. Mrs. Wilde had followed her husband into the sitting room and had begun to read aloud to Orelia. I want her to read to me, declared Orelia, pointing kitchenward. I don't think she can read good enough, dear, said Mrs. Wilde. There ain't but three months' difference in your ages. Orelia had acquired her alphabet somewhat later than the average child, with great difficulty and no order, and at this time could read only the simplest sentences. But wait till her work's done, and I'll call her, conceded Mrs. Wilde. Mar needn't think she's going to help every time, but tonight, being the first, I won't say anything. When the last saucepan had been scoured and put away, Doris longed to crawl into bed and go to sleep. But her mistress summoned her sharply, saying, Relia always gets read to before bedtime, and it's harder for me than scrubbing because I'm dead tired out when it gets dark. Let's hear how you can get on with it. Mrs. Wad was anticipating the complete discomfiture of Doris, but the latter had read by the hour to her mother while she sewed. The books had come from a public library, had been well chosen and pleasantly talked over, and Doris had acquired a clear and agreeable enunciation and an acquaintance with some of the very best English literature. The volume that Mrs. Wilde handed to her was one of fairy tales and was no tax upon her ability, although Orelia would have blundered sadly over its pages. Doris began to read promptly and with ease and charm in spite of her fatigue. Thaddeus lowered his paper to listen, while Orelia's mother sat on the front edge of her chair, amazed and angry, a dark red flush spreading slowly over her face. The most difficult words glided without detention over the lips of the reader. Kelsey Starr had come down into the kitchen and now stood in the open doorway of the sitting room with one hand against the frame listening, and Mrs. Wall glanced up and saw him with the same expression of amused scorn in his narrow gray eyes. Stop, she cried to Doris, who looked up, never imagining the jealousy in the heart of her mistress. Where did you go to school? I never have been to school. Then how can you read like that? snapped Gail, recognizing the qualities she neither could define nor acquire. You read like a lady. My mother was a lady, replied Doris gently. Well, you've read enough for tonight. Mar, turning to Grandma Lane, who had just come in, just show this girl where she's got to sleep while I put Relia to bed. And you, she ordered, turning on Kelsey, had better get to work than to stand there fooling away your time with what doesn't concern you. The raisins are in the yellow bowl on the buttery shelf and the knife's in the table drawer. You won't need a wet rag if you use a cup of water for dipping the knife. Nearly all the influences of Abigail's small early education had disappeared from her life, and when she was hurried or excited, she always dropped her final G and lapsed into the vernacular of the region. Come, Relia, she said sharply. Ain't you ashamed of letting that little beggar girl be so much ahead of you? Something has to be done right away. Doris had never been accustomed to even comfortable surroundings, so she was well pleased with the large closet with one window under the sloping eaves that opened out from the grandmother's room. There was a cot bed with a heavy dark calico comfort, a wooden chair, a washstand with a small mirror that would have diverted Venus herself from all tendencies to vanity, and a few nails driven into the plastered wall. The window had a piece of cheesecloth tacked to the top for a curtain 
The room was against the kitchen chimney and so was moderately warm. By this time, Doris was so exhausted that she could have lain on the bare floor without a protest. She undressed hastily by the glimmer of Mrs. Lane's candle in the next room. Mrs. Wilde appeared in the doorway. Tomorrow we'll call you, being the first time. But after that, you must be down by six o'clock every morning. If you listen, you'll hear one of the men shaking down the sitting room stove. Are them all the clothes you've got? Now remember, you haven't come here to loaf around. She went away without saying good night. Doris had taken her mother's little Bible from her bundle. They had always had a bedtime verse together, but there was no light by which to read. As she knelt to say her prayer, her mother's word again came back to her. Remember, dear, you are God's little girl. Something had come between her consciousness and those sweet words, something dark and cold. It really seemed to her as if God were not caring and the thought brought such a sense of absolute loneliness and despair that it impelled her to take refuge in the twenty-third psalm she crept into bed and weary though she was began to repeat resolutely the familiar words under her breath as she reached the last verse the words were all alight with a new wonderful meaning i will dwell in the house of the lord forever she had never thought much about that sentence it had always suggested church to her and she had been very sure that she would not want to stay always in the most beautiful church that ever was built but now she knew all through her that god is love and the house of the lord must be the house of love joseph lived in that house even in prison and daniel made his home there in the lion's den and in this hard and cruel place she too could be sheltered in the house of love a gentle glow warm comforting restful diffused her entire frame and she fell asleep as on her mother's arm end of section two read by julie taylor february second twenty twenty two